From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Charter schools are supposed to be for everyone, but are they? Right now, some charter schools erect very real barriers that discourage some families from applying or attending. The reality here in Colorado couldn't be further from that. In fact, we see that charter schools are often serving more diverse student populations. And later in the show... Five-year-old Parker is being serenaded before bedtime. Her parents are using soft voices. They ought to use soft lighting as well in the hour before sleep. Why kids are more susceptible to light than adults. They have both larger pupils and clearer lenses in their eyes, so that actually allows more light to get in and impact the circadian system. Plus, the Denver Park created in solidarity with Ukraine. When your car stops running, needs too many costly repairs, or it's time for a replacement, donate it to CPR. It'll be picked up at your convenience, and you'll get a tax receipt when it sells. To get things started, just follow a few simple setup steps. Hand over the title, and your car will soon be on its way to making great radio happen. Start the easy donation process on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News in KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Charter schools are public schools, but privately run, and they're supposed to be open to everyone. But a new book questions just how accessible they claim to be. Wajima Mamandi is a former public school teacher and doctoral student at CU Boulder. Professor Kevin Wellner directs CU's National Education Policy Center. Their book is called School's Choice, How Charter Schools Control Access and Shape Enrollment. And they spoke with CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine. Wajima and Kevin, thank you for being here today. Well, thank you. Thank you, Jenny. Wajma, I'll start with you. For the audience that's not familiar, can you briefly tell us why charter schools started and what their role was supposed to be? Early advocates saw charter schools as a way to experiment with new ways of teaching, um, new ways of reaching students that large comprehensive schools were not serving well, and as incubators of ideas that could then potentially be taken up by other schools and districts. And so early on, all of this, you know, happened, at least on a small scale. But since then, charter school laws have been used by other interests, often headquartered outside of the communities where schools are located. And and these large charter management companies have promoted a version of charter schooling that's more about deregulation and privatization than it is about innovation. At the same time, the rules shaping the operation of charter schools have incentivized the growth of what we think is the most troubling type of charter, ones that claim to be schools of choice, but in fact operate more like schools who are doing the choosing. Kevin, in Colorado, just to give us some context, about 15% of the school population attends a charter school. In this book, you document practices that enable some charter schools to pick and choose who their students are. Why does this issue matter? Yeah, well, one reason why it matters is that we all want schools that identify as public schools to genuinely be open to the public. Right now, some charter schools erect very real barriers that discourage some families from applying or attending. 
These are schools that often get the most praise. After all, their student outcomes look very impressive. For example, here in Colorado, there are actually quite a few examples to choose from, but one example would be Vanguard Charter School in Colorado Springs, which is ranked as a top 10 Colorado high school by U.S. News and World Report. So again, student outcomes look very impressive. And the students who attend may very well be getting a top-notch education. But note that this particular school has a placement test as part of the application process. The school stresses that the test is not an entrance exam. Instead, it's used for grade-level placement or track or ability group placement. But why isn't this done after confirmation of enrollment? Might the results of that placement test play a role in encouraging some students and discouraging others? The school also doesn't provide transportation. Unlike district-run public schools, it doesn't allow for mid-year transfers, so students who are more transient are directed to the, you know, the public school down the street, where teachers will have to do the extra work to bring them into the flow and minimize disruptions. Uh, there's also a homework policy at the school for fourth through eighth graders, where lower homework scores mean that the student will lose priority status for school admission the following year. So all of these policies, as well as the school's discipline policies, help to discourage or usher out students who are less likely to be successful. And it's generally the local public school that then educates those students. Now, I, I should stress that the book describes much worse practices than this, some of which are illegal or close to it. But understanding these access issues matters because the current rules, not just in Colorado, but in most states across the country, the current rules can and should be changed to avoid the bad practices that we described in the book. No part of the publicly funded school system should be designed in a way that, that undermines equity. So for instance, when charter schools serve a lower number of students with moderate to severe disabilities, it obviously impacts those families, but it also calls into question whether taxpayers are sending too much funding to those particular schools also, think about all those studies that are covered in the news about whether the charter school sector does better or worse on standardized tests that students have to take. Like here in Colorado, it's the CMAS test. How do we make those comparisons if charter schools are shaping their enrollment to a much greater extent than the district-run public schools are? Yeah. Wajma, let's draw out some of the practices that you describe in the book. First, there are some decisions charter schools make before a family even applies. Uh, can you briefly touch on some of those, like location, things like that? You know, there are a set of incentives that typically surround a team of people planning and operating charter schools. And so they are incentivized to attract students with high test scores who are fluent in English, who don't have expensive special needs, and whose behaviors align with school philosophy. So in other words, if your success as a charter school depends on enrolling students who are lower cost and who are higher achieving, then you are likely going to make decisions that favor these types of students over others early on. An example of this, I would say there's a growing niche of charter schools. Classical academies is what they're usually called. There's many, many in Colorado. So generally speaking, these schools tend to advertise an elite liberal arts curriculum that's coupled with character education and that places an emphasis on Western civilization and the you know, study of classical languages. The classical charter schools have been described as schools similar to parochial schools that offer um, kind of a classical Christian education, but without the explicitly faith-based curriculum. And so 
these schools through ideological messaging, where they're located, certainly really shape the pool of students who apply. And let's move on to the application process. Some charter schools run their own application system. You argue they can use this to create obstacles and hoops for parents to jump through. Can you touch on a couple of those? You can require that parents visit and commit to volunteering before submitting the application. You can make the application form itself very lengthy, difficult to get a hold of. You can have a you know, really early deadline for the form. An example of this, you know, at Collegiate Academy in Littleton, for example, families, they're required to volunteer 40 hours per year. And if parents are not able to volunteer, they can pay their way out at a rate of $10 per hour or $400 per mm-hmm. student, right? So these are the type of obstacles that discourage families who lack the time and resources needed right at this application you know, stage. And let me add that a theme that emerged in our interviews was that parents are much more likely to take the hint and move on to a school that they see as welcoming rather than fight for entry into a school that doesn't want their child. So, you know, imagine that you're the the mother of a, of a son with ADHD and you want to enroll him in a charter elementary school. You end up facing some of the same barriers that we discussed in the book. For example, maybe you're told during an interview that that's part of the application process that the school doesn't uh, have an educational model or support staff that would be needed to teach your son. So you might very well wonder whether the school is violating one of the federal disability laws, you know, known as you know, IDEA or Section 504. But are you likely to fight? Are you likely to fight that battle? Are you more likely to turn to another school that that's not trying to push you away. Let's say that a kid makes it into a charter school that the parent decides to enroll them. Unlike a regular district-run school, some charter schools practice, you argue, counseling students out. What do they say to make students leave? Yeah, so counseling students out is often connected to either disappointing academic results or with student behavior that the school finds troubling, or both. You might be repeatedly called at, at work and told that you need to pick your son up from school because he's being suspended for the rest of the day. And eventually you have a meeting with the school office and uh, they tell you that your son will have to repeat the grade if he stays at the school for another year. And they explain, hey, you know, that there's that neighborhood public school down the street that isn't as strict about behavior as they are. And that school won't have to hold him back a grade. So maybe, maybe the school is a better option at this point. In fact, we write in the book about charter schools that don't just suspend students, they actually use monetary fines. So if a parent wants to continue enrolling the child, they have to dig into their pockets. Wajma, I wanted to get your take on how you think Colorado's charter schools are doing in terms of providing equality of opportunity to all children. There's, there's a lot of variance by district within Colorado. There are noticeable differences in, in terms of issues of access and equity based on where charters are located in the state. So in Denver, for example, there's a pretty robust mature system of collaboration between charter schools and the district. You know, it was over a decade ago that DPS and charter leaders signed a collaboration compact, is what they call it. And so, you know, the district pledged more funding, access to district real estate, school buildings, and charter schools had to in turn commit to improving student access and equity. You know, part of it was making sure they took in more students with special education needs and so forth. Um, Denver also has a unified common enrollment system and a unified accountability system for district-run public and charter schools. 
On the other hand, to the north, the charter sector in Greeley doesn't seem to prioritize issues of access and equity. So charter schools only enroll about 24% of all students, but they enroll 40% of the district's white students. So there's an over-representation of the district's white students. And the stratification looks much worse when you drill down to the enrollment in the district's charter schools, right? And so Greeley really serves as a microcosm that illustrates what can happen when more advantaged parents use their relative advantage within kind of a choice system to seek out advantages. Kevin, finally, you offer a set of recommendations for how states and authorizers can address how some charter schools restrict access. Tell me about a couple of those. Charter schools are state-created entities. They wouldn't exist if there weren't a, a statute at the state level. So the states make the rules. They can change the rules. But so can charter school authorizers. Uh, The authorizers can require that the applications to open a a charter school address the barriers that we're discussing throughout this book. How will they avoid access barriers related to transportation? How will they engage in outreach and marketing? Will they participate in in free and reduced-priced lunch programs? Will they accept students who transfer in the middle of the year? Will they provide services to students who don't speak English uh, and students with special needs, et cetera, et cetera, right? In short, the state and the authorizers can put in place rules that push charter schools toward more accessible practices. We also discuss a couple districts that supervise charter schools using what are called mystery shopper programs, where staff pose as parents of, for example, students with special needs to see whether the school is placing barriers in front of enrollment. And, and, who's, and who's authorizing those mystery shoppers or who's doing that? So that's done by the school district. So ah, the school district okay. authorizers. So Washington, D.C. is an example of a district that does that. And then, as we discussed earlier, states really need to change the incentives around accountability and funding. In the book, we point to the particularly egregious example of Arizona, where the state recently put in place three different laws that provide clear financial incentives for charter schools to enroll the highest scoring students. And, you know, we could mock Arizona, but it's really just a matter of degree. Uh, Our laws also create those sort of incentives. So the, the basic conclusion here is the rules matter. Charter schools can be framed in a lot of different ways. They could look like a fairly equitable type of policy, or they could look like a fairly inequitable type of policy. And all of us, including charter school operators and the charter school group here, the Colorado League of Charter Schools, all of us should be working together to change those rules uh, to best serve the state students. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine speaking with Wajima Mamandi and Kevin Wellner, both education policy researchers at CU. Their new book is School's Choice, How Charter Schools Control Access and Shape Enrollment. Now let's hear from Dan Schaller, president of the Colorado League of Charter Schools. He also spoke with my colleague, CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine. Dan, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Charter schools were originally conceived to be these teacher-run laboratories of innovation, a place to experiment with new ways of reaching those students who weren't really well-served in large, comprehensive schools. And do you think that's still the case? 
I do. And in fact, we can point to a number of different examples in, in recent years where charter schools have developed for exactly those purposes, whether it's New Legacy Charter Academy, uh, a charter school in Aurora that is open explicitly for pregnant and parenting teens and serves that distinct population, or a new school that's opening up next year in Jefferson County called Prospect Academy that is specifically set up to serve students with special needs, students with autism, uh, dyslexia, ADHD. So we continue to see a wide diversity of options that are serving our students across the state. Charter schools serve about 15% of Colorado's public school population. And as you mentioned, there's a diverse array of charter schools. But if you look at each charter school as a single entity, how well do you think they're doing at opening their doors to all students? Yeah, so I think it's important to to step back and and some of what the the book in question here seems to be implying is that charter schools are actively sort of stacking the deck uh, to try to not serve certain student populations. And the reality here in Colorado couldn't be further from that. In fact, we see that charter schools are often serving more diverse student populations. Right now, charter schools are serving higher percentages of English language learners, higher percentages of students of color than traditional public schools across the state. So this notion that the charter schools in Colorado are somehow not trying to serve diverse students' populations is just not reinforced by the facts. Hmm. Right. So I see your argument when you look at the whole the whole spectrum. But I did want to ask you about there are some charter schools in Colorado, and this is very district dependent. Um, for example, the James Irwin Charter Schools in Colorado Springs or West Ridge Academy in Greeley that give placement tests. Uh, students have to take certain they have to have a certain academic ability. And can't something like a placement test act to screen out some students? What you're describing there actually sounds more like magnet schools to me, Jenny, and um, and sometimes there is some confusion created around that. So magnet schools are actually run by traditional school districts, and they do have the ability to screen students on the front end. Charter schools, on the other hand, do not. Our enrollment provisions uh, and decisions need to be made under state law in a non-discriminatory manner. Um, so the ability that you speak of to screen students on the front end is not something that exists in the public charter school space. Hmm. So so they, they can't have placement tests. I'm just uh, wondering if I have that on the, wrong. On the, on the front end, they cannot screen um, students for academic ability or any other function like that. There might be a school that has a, a test after the fact, after the admissions decision to determine the, the right grade level to place them at, but that is a, f- a far different category than on the front end. Take a district like Jefferson County, which is 30% low-income students. Many of the charter schools there cater to a more affluent population, and that's some of the, the classical charter schools that focus on classic texts and Western history and heritage. And I'm wondering if you believe that charter schools in some districts, like Jeffco or the Colorado Springs area, could be doing a better job of, of trying to reach out and serve low-income children. Again, I think this is why it's just so important to step back and and look at the aggregate, because just like in the traditional public space where you might have occasionally a school that is serving uh, by virtue of its location, a certain student population or more focused on a certain student population, uh, when you step back and look at the whole, that's where the wide diversity of options and the wide diversity of students become so 
critical. Every few years, the state by law has to put out a report about the state of charter schools in Colorado. And the most recent one from a couple years ago demonstrated once again that charter schools are doing very well by some of our state's most historically underserved student populations. The data consistently shows that charter schools are getting better results for those students and they're narrowing the achievement gaps for those students. One of the final buckets is they talk about uh, students who are perhaps counseled out. And I know that's been a big argument nationally. Students with special needs or students who have disciplinary problems. Um, do Do you think this is happening on occasion? What's so interesting about the book is that it tries to paint nationally with a very broad brush. But what we see is that so much as relates to charter schools is state specific. So that's why it's just so important to look on a state-by-state basis at how things are going. In Colorado, we're very proud of the fact that we have one of the strongest uh, charter school laws in the country because of our focus on transparency and accountability and, and things of that nature. And then To this particular point, we see in that report I was referring to uh, the state of charter schools, that also consistently shows that charter schools have lower mobility rates than traditional public schools across our state, meaning that charter school students are more likely to stay in their school throughout the year than in non-charter schools. And tell us, if a charter school has more applicants than there are seats available, how does it decide who gets in? That's a great question. So in charter schools, uh, they have to do uh, a blind admissions process, a random admissions process in those situations. So whether that's a first come, first serve or a random lottery, they have to make those determinations based solely on that. And again, that's consistent with uh, a point I made before about enrollment decisions in Colorado charter schools have to be made in a non-discriminatory manner, which is why that random selection process is a key part of charter school law. It's very district dependent here in Colorado. If you take a large district like Denver, it has one unified application process that everybody applies through. So a parent, let's say, who wants their child to go to a charter school doesn't have to make individual applications. And this could possibly make it easier for families who want to attend charter schools get into them. Are other Colorado school districts considering this? And is this something the league is trying to uh, advocate for? It has been an encouraging trend to see several large districts. I believe Jefferson County uh, School District also recently moved down this path. I believe Boulder might have also recently gone down this path. So it, it is an encouraging trend, first and foremost, because it makes the process of selecting the right school for your child as easy as possible for the family. Rather than having to go out and explore all sorts of different options on your own, uh, the benefit of a unified enrollment system is it brings all the schools to the family uh, and lets the family then rank order their top choices in that system. And in the charter school space, most charter schools are forced to operate at lower funding than traditional public schools. In fact, the most recent information we've seen shows that the typical charter school is is operating at about 85 cents on the dollar per student relative to traditional public schools. So most charter schools don't have the luxury of having additional resources to be able to do all sorts of marketing and all sorts of outreach. And so the movement towards a unified enrollment systems uh, is a positive development in that respect. Dan, what do you think some charter schools are doing well here in Colorado? And what are areas that need to be worked on a little? Charter schools are serving a more diverse population of students across our state. They're providing some tremendously necessary options for families. Our students aren't all the same and our schools shouldn't be either. 
And charter schools are fulfilling a huge need in that respect because of the different flexibilities they have to create new models and to be innovative. One area where continued work is continuing to be done is in the area of special education students. And there are a number of legal and financial barriers that get in the way of charter schools always being able to serve as many of those students as they would like. Uh, so it's not a function of a desire. It's a, it's a function of legal and financial structures. And we're actually actively pursuing some legislation that would open up more pathways and more opportunities for charter schools to better serve special needs students and perhaps even more importantly for special needs students to have better access to high quality public school alternatives. The authors argue that charter school authorizers, so like school districts, should require that schools applying for charter access need to explicitly detail, for example, how they're planning to serve special education students or how they will specifically give preference to underserved populations and maybe actually explicitly state they're going to give preference. And, you know, that maybe that's controversial, but I'm wondering, do you agree with that? As part of the proposal we're actually putting forward, we're trying to make it explicit that if a charter school chooses, they would have the ability to wait in their enrollment preferences for students with special needs. Again, sort of out of the recognition that there are certain charter schools across the state that want to serve more students with special needs. And because of the legal and financial structures that have existed, that have, they have made it very difficult to happen. So we are actually looking at, as part of our proposal, creating an avenue to make that more of an opportunity. Dan, thanks for being here. Thank you, Jenny. My pleasure. Dan Schaller is president of the Colorado League of Charter Schools, speaking with CPR education reporter Jenny Brandine about new research that suggests charter schools are not as inclusive as they are designed to be. And Jenny joins us in the studio. Hi, Jenny Brandine. Hi, Ryan. Listening to your interviews, it's really clear there are different takes on this. Where does this leave parents and educators based on your reporting? I think it's impossible to generalize about what's happening in charter schools. Each one is distinct. As with any school, parents and their children have to think about what's important to them. Some kids like arts or science or a school that has a bit of everything. Some may like a school that stresses being a welcoming community. And perhaps for other children and their parents, test scores are what is important. So parents and children have to be prepared to investigate, ask a lot of questions, and see how the school answers them. You're encouraging them not to generalize about charter schools, but really to shop around based on the needs of their child. I understand there are two new reports out about Colorado's charter schools. Uh, Tell us just a bit more. Yes, one report is from the Keystone Policy Center. It showed that enrollment in charter schools rose during the pandemic. And that could be because some charter schools operated in person and had fewer COVID restrictions, Mm. though many did follow their district's practices. It's hard to know exactly what prompted the move to charter schools. That is at the same time that enrollment in district-run schools dropped overall. Uh, This same report looked at how kids at charter schools did on standardized tests, right? Yeah, and in many cases, students at those schools perform better on those tests. The report noted that performance was less tied to a student's race or income in charter schools than at district-managed schools. Although test scores in some charter schools were significantly worse. Yes. Also, the authors of the book, School's Choice, have argued that there is considerable stratification within racial and socioeconomic groups. And by that, 
I mean, they argue some charter schools find ways to target and admit higher performers among low-income students and students of color. So they'd argue it's exceedingly difficult to get a true comparison of student outcomes. Jenny, Jenny, I'm wondering as well, we've heard so much about how low test participation this past spring has meant that results were just unreliable. And there was such a wide variability in how students learned during the pandemic, you know? Yeah, definitely. Okay, let's turn to another report and study that echo what Dan Schaller acknowledged in the interview, that Colorado's charter schools have work to do when it comes to serving students with special needs. Yes, these come from the Colorado Association of Charter School Authorizers and the Center for Learning Equity. They surveyed four dozen families with children with disabilities. Families reported difficulty finding information about how schools educate students with disabilities. The reports also found a widespread perception that charter schools don't serve children like theirs and that families were often steered away from charter schools. Were those beliefs based on their own experiences? Sometimes parents heard stories from other parents, and sometimes it was district officials steering them away, but sometimes it was what charter schools told them. What are some examples? They were told similar things to what the authors talked about, and that their children, quote, don't fit the charter school's model. One parent was told, quote, you need to understand this is not a place for this child. You need to get them out of this school. And I should note that a companion report has a number of recommendations for the state on how to make charter schools more accessible. Colorado's charter schools enroll students with disabilities at some of the lowest rates in the nation. What is the state? What are school districts doing about that? So the State Board of Education took action in January. They did several things. Charter schools can't ask about disability status on their enrollment applications. All must have a website that clearly states they don't discriminate. Their admission staff must also get yearly training on how to answer parents' questions in a way that, that doesn't discourage enrollment. That happened after several civil rights complaints were filed against more than two dozen charter schools that had asked about disability status on their applications. Can conversations about the services students need happen after a child is admitted, though? After admissions, yes. The State Board of Education is now making rules for how such conversations can happen. And that's for all schools, charter or not. Bottom line, school staff have to have conversations that assure the parents that their rights are protected. And only the school district can make a final decision that a particular school can't effectively meet a child's needs. Ah, Meaning that has to come from the district that holds the charter. Jenny, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. That is CPR education reporter Jenny. Brundine. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with why lights dim should come before lights out. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. A Catholic nun in Colorado Springs wanted to help victims of sex trafficking to recover from the trauma. Now she's opened a non-denominational home where survivors decide what resources they most need for their healing. Up to this point, they've been controlled by somebody else. So They'll need to learn what their needs are. No one's ever asked them before. Read about this place of rescue and recovery from sex trafficking at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. It is bedtime for Parker, and she's about to brush her teeth. Parker, how old are you? Five. You're five years old. So what, what is bedtime, Dad? Bedtime is... 7.30 on days where she has a nap, 7 on days when she doesn't. 
You have this down to a science, it seems. <laughs> that, yes, we do. She's been doing a bedtime routine since she was a couple of weeks old, I want to say. We had a doctor that really encouraged it, and so that's where we started. <laughs> After brushing, it's on to mouthwash, bubblegum flavor. Indeed, Parker's parents, Roy and Andy Don Roth of Denver, have given a lot of thought to this bedtime ritual. And today, we have more light to shed on the subject. Or actually, less light? I'll explain that in a moment. First, Parker crawls into bed in pajamas festooned with... Plants and bunnies. And Mom and Dad serenade her to sleep with their dog Mando in the huddle. Do you have a certain song you'd like tonight? Yeah. Which one? I'm a child of God. I'm a child of God? Okay, ready? Me or Dad or both? I am a child of God, and he has sent me here. We visited the Roths, equipped with new research about kids and bedtime. We're going to hear more from them in a bit, but first, let's meet Lauren Hartstein from the Sleep and Development Lab at CU Boulder. Lauren, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. You studied three, four, and five-year-olds... And while a tangle of different factors come into play around bedtime, uh, you focused on light. What'd you find? Well, we found that young children's circadian clocks are highly sensitive to light in the hour before bedtime, and that they had a high level of suppression of the sleep-promoting hormone melatonin, even in response to a very dim light. Even in response to dim light, they produced less melatonin than they normally would. That's what I hear you saying. Yes, exactly. Are they more susceptible, uh, for instance, than a 40-year-old? Yes, there's a few reasons that we think that young children are more sensitive to light than adults, including that they have both larger pupils and clearer lenses in their eyes, so that actually allows more light to get in and impact the circadian system. Okay, that makes sense. I think of kind of cataracts developing, right, as we go down the timeline. Right, exactly. But they have larger, what did you say, pupils? Yes, larger pupils. Kids have larger pupils than adults. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Is this surprising, the extremity of the difference? It was actually very surprising. In adults, there's a relationship between the brightness of the light and how much melatonin suppression that you see. And so we originally expected to find something similar, and we're very surprised to see the amount of suppression even at such low intensities of light. What kind of light are we talking about here? All light? Screen light? Lamp light? Probably all light. So the lights that we looked at ranged from 5 lux to 5,000 lux. So to put that in a little bit of context, um, an iPad at full brightness, about 12 inches away from your face, could be up to 100 lux. So 5 lux is pretty dim. And so it kind of suggests that even typical room light that you would have in your house might be impacting children's readiness for sleep. In that hour, you say, before bed. So it feels to me that like that time span, an hour before bed, is also important here? It is. There's a recent report that suggested about half of young children use screen media in the hour before bed. And so we know this is a time when children are getting a lot of exposure to artificial light. And I should say, additionally, we found that melatonin levels remained low even 50 minutes after the light had been turned off. So it suggests that this will have an impact even after the light has been turned off and they've gone to bed. It could have long-lasting impacts. Remind us why melatonin is so important. So 
in the evening, the body produces melatonin, and it's kind of a signal that you are getting ready for bed. It peaks in the middle of the night while you're sleeping, and then it reduces throughout the night to a low level upon awakening. And we use it as a marker of when the body is getting ready, when it has entered into that biological night before sleep. And so any delays or reduction in melatonin production is going to have kind of a long tail that affects sleep well into the night. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, strange question. Do we only absorb light through our eyes? Or like, does this have to do with any other sort of physical absorption of light? In humans, we only absorb light through our eyes. Okay. <laughs> We're not lizard people. So, yeah. Yeah. In other animals, I think there are ways that they absorb through the skin, but it has been pretty definitively shown in humans that it is only through these specialized cells in the eye. Okay. So this is an ocular phenomenon that you're studying. Well, I shared your findings with the Roth family, and they made a lot of sense to Andy Don, who says her five-year-old instinctively seeks out lower light before bedtime. Parker does prefer... Like when we're up on the top floor, she prefers to have that lamp on versus the can lights. I think that it's too bright sometimes for her and she prefers the lamp instead. I hadn't thought about it until now. So she's usually the one to hop on the couch and turn that lamp on. Her dad, Ross, mentioned that their house doesn't have any dimmers. Could that be a good tool here, Lauren? Yes, definitely. So we think that these findings suggest one thing that parents could incorporate into the bedtime routine is creating a dimmer environment to kind of lead to calming down and getting the child ready for bed. And so just something as simple as incorporating dimmers into lamps could be a useful tool. We also heard that they have blackout curtains, and they mentioned the Roths that it's generally easier to get Parker to go to sleep in the winter when it's dark out early versus the summer when there's more light to fight with. Uh, Do you think that plays a role here? That's a great question. We know a lot in adults about how sleep and circadian rhythms change across the season, but there isn't a lot of research at this point about young children. We would expect that because the amount of light they're experiencing during the day changes drastically between the seasons, though, that we probably would expect to see differences. Mm -hmm. So there's a dearth of research for young kiddos in this, huh? Yes, absolutely. That's surprising to me. Yes. Yeah. It's it's a really important time in sleep. There's a lot of transitions that are going on. If you think about how children of this age switch from regular napping to the one consolidated sleep period at night, yeah. this is a time when they're establishing a lot of those habits and routines that they're going to carry on throughout childhood. Additionally, we know that about 30% of these young children will have some kind of sleep problem during this time point, whether that's resistance and wanting to go to bed or trouble falling asleep. And so sleep problems in this age group are prevalent and need to be further studied. What I hear you saying, though, is that in the hour before bed, for young kiddos, it's awfully nice to create a kind of light-free or reduced light cocoon, for lack of a better term. Yes, we know that having a consistent bedtime routine is extremely important in this age group. And so we think that creating a very calm environment as a wind-down activity could be a good way to get them in the right mindset and ready for bed. And so that's um, a lot of families' routine is singing a song or reading a story, um, brushing teeth. And so I think that doing this in a calming environment could help with all of those tools. Let's do talk about the how of this research. Uh, You presumably need a control group. Maybe it's the same kids that you're exposing 
to a lot of light right before bed versus, you know, the the more somber setting. How, How did this work out? So we had 15 different light intensities that each child was assigned to one, ranging from a very dim light to a very bright light. And the way that we do the study overall is for two days, we transformed each family's home into a dim light environment or what we actually call a cave. And we do this by covering the windows in the home with black tarps, and we set up dim lamps and just make everything very dim. And on the first evening, we collected saliva samples every 30 minutes in order to measure just children's baseline melatonin levels. And then on the final day, they were exposed to that light for one hour in the hour before their regular bedtime. And finally, we compared the saliva samples we collected during the light exposure to those collected at the same time on the previous evening to see how that light impacted their melatonin production. Mm, So melatonin, obviously detectable in saliva. Yes. How was it to work with children of this age and their families? It's very fun. The children are very excited. Uh, For them, it's researchers are coming and bringing toys and games and playing with them in a different environment for a couple of days. Um, We call ourselves the sleep fairies, and the kids get very excited when we're there. (laughs) The sleep fairies. Well, it's nice to have met a sleep fairy. Lauren, thank you so much (laughs) for sharing this with us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Lauren Hartstein of CU's Sleep and Development Lab. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're all broken in our own ways, and we all need help from time to time. And when we can meet each other with empathy and compassion, that's where we can find hope. And that's exactly what Back From Broken is all about. And I remember them like whispering behind my back of being like, oh, don't say that to Lynn. You're going to give her an eating disorder. We're coming back on March 4th with some of the most powerful stories we've ever told. So please make sure you're following Back From Broken wherever you get your podcasts. You're with Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. When a Russian missile struck Babi Yar in Ukraine March 1st, there was additional outrage. That's because the attack was near a memorial that honors the tens of thousands of Jews who were massacred by the Nazis there in World War II. There is a Babi Yar Memorial Park in southeast Denver in solidarity with Ukraine. Back in 2011, I spoke with history professor David Schneer. The story of Baba Yar unfolds rather dramatically. The Germans take over the city September 19th, 1941. The Soviets had left a few partisans behind and basically blew up the center of town to destroy the, the sort of heart of the city so the Germans wouldn't have it. And the Germans accused the Jews of sabotaging them. And so they ordered all Jews out to the square. And then those Jews who showed up that day, and it turned out there were about 33,000, were marched out of town to this place called Baba Yar and were systematically shot over two days. And those two days, September 29th and 30th, those dates have become this memorial space on the calendar for memorializing what happened at Babi Yar. Now that place, Babi Yar, over the whole period of German occupation of Kiev, which lasted two years, estimates are more than 100,000 people were killed there at Babi Yar, Jews and others. I think if you had a list of names and you said Auschwitz and Treblinka and you threw in Babi Yar, a lot of people would be puzzled by the third name. Yes. Why, why isn't this better known? From my own vantage point, not only do most people not know about Babi Yar, but there's not a lot of memorials to Babi Yar. It hasn't really sort of made it as this iconic site of the Holocaust. Was this suppressed? 
It was suppressed in the Soviet Union. So after Baba Yar was liberated in November 1943, they started investigating what took place there. And it was pretty clear that everybody knew what had happened there, not just the numbers in the sort of 100,000 range, but also who was killed at Baba Yar. And very shortly after the war, the Soviet government decided that it wasn't going to be good for moving on from the wartime period, which was a pretty horrible trauma for the country, if it obsessed or spent so much time memorializing the Jewish victims of the Holocaust. And in fact, I think pretty famously in the Soviet Union, Khrushchev, when he took power in the 50s, he wanted to build a mall on the site of Babi Yar. And there was local outcry against this building of the mall. Like a shopping mall? Like a shopping mall. Okay. Not even like a shopping mall. A, a shopping, shopping mall. Built on Babi Yar. And um, there was local outcry because the locals knew what had happened. So just because the government isn't establishing memorials at Babi Yar doesn't mean the locals don't see that space as somehow holy, frankly, or, or sacred. So it's not until 1961 when this poet, Yevgeny Yevtushenko, breaks open this silence about Babi Yar with his famous poem called Babi Yar. And the opening sentence is, there is no memorial at Babi Yar. And from that moment on in 61, um, Shostakovich, Dmitry Shostakovich, wrote a symphony set to those words. And from that point forward, word about Babi Yar kept increasing and increasing. But the reality was that story was effectively behind the so-called Iron Curtain. So although people in the Soviet Union were knowing about Babi Yar and understood what Babi Yar was, it didn't necessarily make it to the West. I'd like to talk about um, any survivors in a moment, but can we listen to that Shostakovich piece together? Yeah, it's a pretty amazing piece. Symphony Number no. 13, also known as the Bobby Yar Symphony from Shostakovich. Were there survivors, people who could talk about this story to the world? There were survivors of Bobby Yar. It didn't necessarily mean, though, that they were talking about their stories. In general, survivors did not talk about their stories widely in the immediate aftermath of the war. Um, Primo Levi famously had trouble getting his survival in Auschwitz published at all in Italian or in English. It took him 10 years. So it's probably no surprise that the survivors of Babi Yar also didn't have a platform that people wanted to hear them from. But there were survivors. Um, the stories are pretty famous for how people survived Babi Yar because it's actually much more difficult to survive a mass shooting campaign. The people who survived tended to fake their own deaths. People would be marched to the edge of a ravine, lined up, and then shot and fell into the ravine. And smart people, I guess, or people who were brave somehow, fell before the shot hit and ended up in this mass pile of, of the dead and managed to survive by hiding themselves among corpses. Were massacres or massacre sites like Babi Yar documented by photographers? Yes, they were actually extensively documented by photographers. So the way the Soviet Union handled Nazi atrocities, which is what they would have been called at the time, it wasn't called the Holocaust until much later, they actually set up research teams called Extraordinary Commissions to create systematic ways of documenting uh, war crimes effectively. I actually like to think about these scenes as crime sites 
And the Soviet Liberating Army brought a whole team of forensic researchers to each of these sites. And we have to think of the magnitude of what we're talking about here. So every city in Ukraine has its Babi Yar, or it's the, even the word Yar, which means ravine in Russian. The word Yar became so laden with Nazi atrocities that poets would actually use the word Yar, or ravine, to signal Nazi atrocities in the same way that the word camp in English has that Holocaust echo to it. The research teams, the forensic research teams, would show up to a site normally a day or two after the army liberated it, and they would often find an empty space. That was, to me, one of the most shocking things when I started doing this research, coming across these files, was that the first photograph was always called a general view. And the general view was essentially the untouched crime scene. And it was an empty ravine. You would never know that this is a crime scene. And then the researchers would start digging because they actually knew what the Germans were doing, which was marching people to the outskirts of town, shooting them en masse, and burying the dead. And they frequently found the remnants of people as they started investigating. Um, once they found remnants of the crime, they actually brought forensic scientists in to determine who died and how people died. But photographers were with them the entire step of this research process. How does Denver have a Bobby Yar park? It started in the 1960s when in the United States there were Save Soviet Jewry movements popping up all over the country. And here in Denver, we had a very powerful chapter. This group here, the Save Soviet Jewry movement, put a petition before the Denver City Council in the 1960s to create a memorial space named after Babi Yar. And they were doing this also in the wake of the Yevtushenko poem and the Shostakovich symphony that had been circulating. What's, I think, very compelling is that the Denver City Council agreed to do this and actually in 1971 named this remote park, which has been likened to the topography or the geography of Babi Yar itself at the edge of Denver near Aurora as a city park called Babi Yar Park. Now, it didn't become a memorial site, an actual memorial with places to go memorialize until 1983. When we actually do the number crunching about the Holocaust, it's estimated that about a third of Holocaust victims were killed in places like Babi Yar, in places throughout the Ukraine and Belarusia, on in forests, in uh, ravines, in anti-tank trenches, and it gets more horrifying even than that. I think most people don't know about that. Most people, when they think of the Holocaust, think trains, they think camps, they think chimneys. They don't think beautiful landscapes, empty forests, and ravines, the way the Bobby R. Park Memorial here does. History professor David Schneer speaking with me in 2011 about Denver's Bobby R. Memorial Park. I should note that David passed away in November of 2020. Thanks for spending time with us today on Colorado Matters, and thanks to our team. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, and I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Jenny Brundine and Nell London. This is CPR News and KRCC.